the theme of the book we're preaching through, the New Testament book of Hebrews. You can open to chapter 4. The book of Hebrews is uh, in its central theme about exalting Christ. Uh, And what a, a gift of God that is to us that we can week after week as we open this book, we see Christ exalted before us, for that is what we need. We need our hearts just continually refreshed in how wondrous Christ is in all of the specific and concrete ways in which he is wondrous to us. In this section, we begin with verse 14 of chapter 4. The writer begins Uh, transitioning into a a new section which is exalting the priesthood of Christ. So we're reading Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us Hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that your invitation to us would be seen would be appreciated with the immensity, the depth, the glory of it, that we would would come, we would draw near, we would see you, we would find the grace we need, Lord. We need grace, means after means. Whether it is our own life, the world around us, we need grace, we need grace help, and we want to be that to others. So we ask that you would fill us by your spirit, giving us clarity in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus is our great high priest, and the author will spend some time on this point. Now, at that time, uh, priests were something very common. It didn't matter what uh, religion you were a part of. The priesthood was very central to all people's practices of religion. A priest was someone who represented people to God. The biblical priesthood was given as a reminder of how deeply sin has separated us from God. We need a mediator. We are in the presence of God, but our sin keeps us 
from him relationally and keeps us in a place where the justice of God is set against us. And so when a sacrifice was brought by someone to the altar, the person could not actually place the sacrifice on the altar. Only the priest could do that. All of the duties that took place within the tabernacle and then the temple, those were only conducted by the priest. No one else was allowed to enter into the the main part of the temple. When we read in the New Testament people gathering in the temple, it is speaking of the courtyards and the colonnades that surrounded it, but the temple building itself, only the priests could enter. In the the Jewish temple, according to God's specific design, there were two main rooms. The front room, called the holy place, was where priests would enter twice a day. There they would offer incense up to God, which represented the prayers of God's people. They would uh, keep uh, the candelabras burning, representing the light of God in the midst of his people. The inner room behind that, separated by a a heavy, very thick curtain, was the most holy place, or called the Holy of Holies. And into that second room, only the high priest could enter, and that was only one day of year, the Day of Atonement. The writer of Hebrews describes this ahead in chapter 9, Verses 6 and 7, he says, The priests go regularly into the first section of the temple, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter in, and there he would make an offering that was for all of the sins of the nation that had been committed that year that were not covered by another sacrifice. As he says, the unintentional sins, those sins which people had not even been aware of, that they had not gone to God themselves. The Day of Atonement was to cover the people, and only the high priest could enter through the curtain, offer blood which represents life. Our life must pay for our sins. The Bible says the wage of sin is death. And what took place in the Old Testament sacrificial system was all pointing to and preparing us to understand what Christ would do. When the high priest went through the curtain to enter the Holy of Holies, that represented heaven. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, which was on the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the tablets of the law. And that was called the mercy seat. It, it represented that God sits here. God dwells here. The sacrifice, the blood is being brought to the presence of God to pay for the sins that the people have committed. 
On the cross, Jesus fulfills all of this. He acted as our high priest, entering into the holy place, offering himself. He brought his own blood before the Father to pay for the sins of anyone and everyone who would entrust themselves to him. We read this also in Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, referring to the tabernacle or the, t- or the temple. The more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus entered into the perfect tent, the perfect presence of God. And there he offered not the symbolic sacrifice from animals. He he offered the sacrifice of himself and he paid in full what God requires for our sin. Jesus is our high priest. He went to the Father on our behalf. He paid for our sin. When he died, we read in the Gospels that at the moment of his death, that curtain was supernaturally ripped in two, which declared the way to God is now open. The separation is gone. The curtain doesn't hold us back. It is made open. Jesus has made the way. Verse 14 of our text, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's referring both symbolically he passed into the holy place which represented heaven. He came to the presence of God to make sacrifice, but he also by his death and then resurrection from the dead physically and personally has entered into heaven where he now reigns and represents us and stands for us. And so in the New Testament church, we no longer have the office of priests. So that is a very serious distinction between the Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church, which calls their clergy priests. That's not just a matter of semantics, different titles. Like we can refer to pastors as also elders. Pastor, elders, it really doesn't make a difference. It means the same thing in the Bible. Priest, pastor, very different meanings. A priest is needed to represent the person before God. You're not able to go to God on your own. You need the priest. We have a great high priest, and now we all come 
freely. In fact, the scripture says we are all now priests. We all go directly to God. There is not a single reference to a priest in an office in the New Testament church. It is completely manufactured by men. Zero biblical foundation for it. And that distinction is important for how we understand our approach to God. It is important to understand that Christ has done it all. We're not resting on men to help us that we have to confess to them or we have to pray to some saint. We pray to Jesus. We confess to Jesus. We go to Jesus because Jesus delivers. Jesus holds up. He protects. He is all that we need. We don't need anyone but him. And it diminishes him to declare that we need others to get us there. We all still sin at times, but Jesus keeps the curtain open. The way is always open for those who trust in him. And with this understanding of what verse 14 means, we have a great high priest in Jesus who's gone before us. There are two responses we're given to this reality. Since Jesus is our great high priest, we're told, verse 14, hold fast our confession. We're told, verse 16, draw near the throne of God. So let's look at the first one. Our first response is remain focused on Jesus. Hold fast our confession. Our confession is, what do we believe about Jesus? What is our faith? Hold fast to what we know and believe about Jesus. What we believe about his person. He is, verse 14, the son of God. God in flesh. And we are introduced at the very beginning of this book to the greatness of who Jesus is. Look again, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, what he did on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hold fast your confession. Hold fast. Focus on what we know about who Jesus is. And hold fast to the confession of what he has done, what we call the gospel. 
that the eternal Son of God became flesh, born in human nature, lived a perfect life, went to the cross by his own purpose and plan, gave his life as a payment for sin, died physically buried, and then was raised physically from the dead so that the one we entrust ourselves to, God and man, is one who leads us through death because he has come through and out of death, and now he reigns over all that exists. And we believe in and follow him. We are to focus on this one. We're told, hold fast to this confession. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to what is true about him. Hold fast means grab and don't let go. Think of all the movies you've seen where the person goes over the cliff and is hanging on to a vine or a branch. You've probably seen a hundred movies or shows with that scene. And just put yourself in that position. I would say you're holding fast. With all that you had, you're holding on. That, that's the picture. Hold on. Don't let go for anything. Or another picture that may help you is a treasure that you have your hands on and you want to make sure isn't lost, isn't stolen. You cling to it. Christ is our treasure. He is our hope. And if you're wondering, I don't know if I have the strength to hold on to him, well, in Philippians 3.12, it says, we hold on to him who, who has laid hold of us. You don't have to worry about being able to remain holding on because his arms are already wrapped around you. Our holding on is our keeping ourselves focused on who has saved us and what our salvation brings, who is important. Who is the main character of life and of this world? Who is sovereign? Who is faithful? Who is good? We hold fast by prioritizing what is true about Jesus and the gospel. So that we're going to what he has said rather than what I happen to think. Or what someone else happens to say or their opinion. Why would we go to the opinion of someone else or ourselves, which is how we got in our mess, when we have Christ to hear. It means that we exalt what Christ has done. We're not exalting the world. We can appreciate what people do. We exalt what Christ has done because nothing remotely comes close to who he is and what he has provided for us. It means our contentment is in Jesus. We're not trying to be content through a relationship or what we get. We are, we are seeking, I will be content because I know Jesus and I love him and I'm spending time. I will learn, Paul says, to be content in him because that's a means of contentment that cannot change, be lost, be stolen. And all the other forms, they can all quickly be gone 
Christ is the contentment that is fullest and cannot be lost or altered. There's a lot going on in your life. So keep Jesus dominant in your life. The reality of Jesus, may that be dominant. For myself, it's not that I stop believing or I forget that it's true, but I can live as if I've forgotten. And every morning, my essential first task is place Christ before me as wondrous and worthy. Every single day it begins, Christ is exalted and worthy. My heart needs to have that orientation as the day begins. And your heart needs that too. Our responses to Jesus being our high priest is first, remain focused on Jesus. Second, bring all that you need to Jesus. Verses 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What kind of throne is it? The throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus understands every struggle you have. He understands it. He can sympathize because he is God who became flesh. Jesus knew what it was like to lose his father to death. We don't know at what age. We know it was after he was 12. He he went through the grief, losing a parent. Jesus knew what it was like to be Hot and thirsty and tired. He knew what it was to be misunderstood, to be slandered. He immersed himself into the pain and troubles of thousands. There were unceasing demands upon him. He was well aware of the magnitude of the weight of humanity's sin and guilt. And he was under the furious assault of Satan. We have a a couple little glimpses, but consider your own experience. Consider how persistent Satan is after you. Consider the attention of hell upon God in flesh. If Satan could but derail and destroy him, the way for him is clear. The assault of Satan must have been massive. Jesus knew every form of temptation 
when soldiers return from war, they often don't tell the stories. They, they keep the stories to themselves and only share them when they're with their buddies who had served with them because who can understand what they went through? You can talk about it, but if you were not there, the sounds, the smells, the, the sights, the destruction, the horror, the brutality, if, if you weren't there to experience, to share it, just how can people understand? Tim O'Brien, who has served in Vietnam and writes on it, wrote that a war story, if truly told, makes the stomach believe. Jesus knows your stomach-churning pain. He knows the gnawing on your mind. He knows the grief that's beyond words on your soul. A number of years ago, I was with a Belarusian pastor in the northeast part of Belarus, which is spiritually very hard. Large region that is predominantly atheistic. Churches are very rare and small. Alcoholism is prevalent. I spent a day with this pastor who was then probably early 60s, just sharing about ministry and talking. And after a few hours, he, he finally asked my advice. On a situation in his village that it was so horrific that I was paralyzed in response. I can still remember I sat there and did not say a word. I just didn't even respond. I couldn't even look at him. I couldn't say, that sounds bad, because the words that sounds bad don't even touch what he shared. And I sat there utterly unable to think of a feeling or response or a word that could help him. But Jesus, he is not only grieved for the horrific, he is not overwhelmed by it. And he doesn't pull away from it. He, he leans into what is horrific in your experience, and he stays there the whole time. And what he has to say to you will stand and be faithful. He is able to be there for you in ways that no one else can. Jesus is our great high.
priest. And he sits on the throne that's called grace. He has the power you need. Only Jesus raised himself from the dead. No one else has the power that he has. Jesus has the wisdom we need. He alone never failed, never sinned. Jesus has the heart we need. For he says, come, find mercy. Come, receive grace. Come, receive the help that you need. This is not an invitation for the strong or the successful. This is an invitation for the clueless. This is an invitation for the overwhelmed. It's an invitation for those who failed. This is the invitation of those who don't know what to do, have tried and it's got worse. This is the invitation for you to come to the one who has all that you need and his heart is big enough. His willingness is on display He will not grumble that you have come yet again. He will not roll his eyes at the display of the foolishness of your life. He's not there trying to make you feel bad for a while until he acts. He is ready, inviting you to come, desiring for you to experience immediately his love and care for you. And here is what you will get every time you who belong to Jesus. Here is what you will receive every single time you come to him. Grace. That is what we receive every time. Grace. You may be thinking, huh? I tried. I prayed and prayed and prayed. There was no answer. I don't know if it's God. I don't know if it's me. I would ask you, if you think God is not answering, God's not there, is God done Is God done? The end has not yet come. The gospel, the gospel's not empty. Every part of the gospel remains true, in place, active. And eternity, it's coming fast. There is a grace for being older. The speed at which we see eternity coming. And that's a grace when you know who is in it. 
this is all just moving by. And the day, there will be a day, a historic day, when you see him. Your eyes will see him. You will hear what Jesus' voice sounds like as it says your name. You will. The presence of Christ, of the glorified Christ, whatever magnitude that is, you're going to know it. And it's just a little bit off. And in that moment, everything will be made completely right and full. Nothing, nothing will be missing. And the fullness by which he will show his grace will have you eternally praising him for the overwhelming goodness for which you cannot find words. And there will not be a single complaint, but only praise to Jesus for what he has done. And so let's finish our time by looking at encouragements from Christ being our high priest. They are wonderful encouragements, for it is such a wondrous reality. The first encouragement from Christ being our high priest, through Christ you belong in his presence. That's where you belong. That's that's home for you. It's not where you're unwelcome barging in. Does he want me? The presence of Christ is where you belong. Don't allow the reality of your unworthiness cause you to ever think you're unwelcome. They're very different realities. We are unworthy. We are never unwelcome. And so we come with confidence because we know Christ's heart for us. How can we really know his heart for us? The manger. God became flesh and dwelt among us. The cross. He paid with his own blood, his own death, the payment for your sin. How do we know the size of God's heart? It is proclaimed by all that Christ has done. And when you're tempted to think, pull away, and it is a temptation. Because to pull away is never the will of God. It's never the voice of God. It's never the reasoning of God. Not ever. When any thought comes to you of pulling back or staying away, immediately you should know that's a lie. That's from hell. That's a temptation. As a temptation, it's meant to destroy and hurt your soul. It does not represent Christ at all. 
How do we fight temptation? We cast it aside and we embrace the presence of Christ who has said, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of where I dwell. The first encouragement is through Christ you belong in God's presence. And I tell myself that increasingly when those mornings when just the onslaught of every, every weakness, every failure, every reason you don't belong there, answer it, I do belong because of Christ. I belong here and I will not push off because I have failed. I will step in because of what Christ has done. Second, through Christ, you receive what only God can do. It says to receive help in time of need. What kind of help do we get? The help that only God can provide. The help he gives is not what someone else can do. It's what only God can do. It is the God level of help. That means it's perfect. It's eternal. It is all that you need. It means it doesn't matter how big the problems are or how great your weakness. It's God's help. And that means it doesn't matter how weak we are. And we're not worried about how weak we are. We're not discouraged about how weak we are. And we're not saying to ourselves, oh, you're so weak. Because that's irrelevant. Our strength was never meant to be in ourselves. Where did we ever come up with that? Not the word of God. Weaknesses mean nothing. Our help is him. This is part of the confidence we have in coming because God can handle anything. And that's not just big overwhelming things. It is. It's also the ordinary. The things that you think, oh, I can handle that. That's just ordinary life. Uh, He wants you talking to him about all of it. If you're planning a family vacation... God wants you to talk to him about it because he not only wants it to be restful for your soul, he wants it to be deep and rich with his presence, with thinking of him, how you interact. He wants it to be a wonderful time in which at the very depth of your soul, he is honored, you're blessed. He wants you to help. He wants to help plan it with you. He, as you go to school, He wants to help you as you go from period to period, as you sit listening to a lecture that's boring you to death. But there's going to be a test sometime. He's there to prepare you, to help you as you're interacting with the other kids in all the the ordinary ebbs and flows of going through your day. He wants to be a help in all of it because he wants to be a part of all of it to bless you and use you in all of it. So he's honored in all of it. It's not a, you know, an emergency break glass. There shouldn't be any glass over that. It should, that's pulled every day. Start every day. Pull it. (laughs) 
And if you go anywhere else for help, you're going to receive flawed wisdom, limited help, and it's short-lived to whatever benefit it is. The third, the last encouragement. Through Christ, you only receive grace. If you're in Christ, without exception, everything that comes into your life has grace in it. All things will work together for good for those who love God. He embeds grace into everything. And that's, we need to, to grab that truth because it doesn't always look that way. It doesn't always feel that way. By faith, back to where we, we cling to our confession. We hold fast the confession of who Christ is, what he's done. Lord, this, this is unwelcome, but I know your grace is here. So I'll, I'm going to keep looking at you. I'm going to focus on you. What does it mean to the best of my ability to follow and honor you in this moment? Because grace is here. When, when you're weary of the situations that stay, well, that's when you need to remind yourself, grace is here because Jesus is here. The presence I'm in is in the presence of the great high priest, the one who represents me. If you this morning are far from God, it's not because of him. It's not because of his intention. It's not because of his failure. It's not his desire. You're far from God. It is not because of him. That you have to carry on yourself. And so turn to him who doesn't want you far away. We, we heard last week, verse 7 of this chapter, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't let a hardened heart keep you from Jesus' loving, gracious heart. Don't let distortions of belief, lies, keep you away from the throne of grace. Remind yourself of how much a payment and sacrifice Jesus made so that we can come. And don't disparage Jesus by, by acting as if your failure is bigger than his grace. You can outdo God, not even with your failures. Jesus has opened the curtain. Don't peer in. Come in. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for what your word tells us 
These are not things that we're trying to come up with, trying to figure out what is God like, what is God thinking, what is God doing. You tell us. You are not unknown. You are very real and have made yourself known through your son in ways vivid and wondrous. And so help us all to draw near because we all, we need your grace Help us to see that. Bring the conviction to us of it. Bless us for we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.